gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. I know I say it a lot, but thank you that we can laugh at church. There are some churches that are just so uptight that the idea of laughing during a service is just foreign to them. But that's why you made pastors like me. Everybody needs someone to laugh at. But I thank you, God, you know, because you created humor. You gave us our sense of humor. You gave us things in life that bring us joy and gladness. And that's truly one of the many wonderful gifts you've given us. None as great as your son who died on the cross so we could be saved. As we turn our hearts and minds to your word tonight, help us, Father, just to hear you speak. Help us, God, to have ears that hear and hearts that receive the truth you want to share with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We ended last week with a warning from Samuel to the people to fear, serve, and obey God. He gave them encouragement of what would happen if they did so, and then he gave them a warning of what would happen if they didn't. As we move into chapter 13, uh, in the very first verse, we jump ahead two years from Samuel's speech in chapter 12. And it goes by pretty quickly and apparently pretty quietly. I am guessing that nothing really happened in these couple of years because if anything of importance had happened, I imagine that the Holy Spirit would have told Samuel to write it down. So with that, we pick up in chapter 13, verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. <coughs> then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Then the people hid in caves in thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people following him, all the people followed him trembling. So we get this setting for the scene that begins Saul's fall from glory. He separates the troops, some under his command, some under Jonathan, 2,000 and 1,000. Um, <clears throat> this is only a couple of years into his reign, so it shows us that Jonathan would have been a grown man at this part, which means Saul was probably not a young man when he was anointed king, at least in his 30s, maybe even in his 40s. And then Jonathan attacks the Philistine garrison, and 
Saul tells all the people it was him. Did you notice that? Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And then it was heard that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. It is interesting to note that Saul now has a standing army, which is something Israel had not had before. Before, men would get called out to war, but there was not an actual standing military. Um, as a result, the Philistines hear about what's going on, and they gather 30,000 chariots. Now, you have to remember, this was uh, the Iron Age. Really? The NIV has 3,000 instead of 30,000. Let's see what mine says. Mine says some manuscripts say 3,000. Somewhere between 3,000 and 30,000 chariots. Well, but you have to understand what the chariot meant back then. Right? A chariot was made of iron. You know, and if you've ever watched, gosh, remember Ben-Hur, the chariot scene at the end? Right, the little spiky things that were spinning around on the side of the wheels and all that. That's real. They did that. And now you're on foot. And remember, they don't have swords. Well, we're going to see that a little bit more, but <laughs> they're not really well armed or anything like that. These chariots would have mowed people down like they weren't even there, pulled by sometimes two, sometimes four, sometimes six horses, depending on the size of the chariot. This was the equivalent in this day of having a battalion of tanks when you were going up against people who had sticks. Right? Does that make a difference? Yeah, you, you would think so, wouldn't you? Now what happens to the Israelites? Right? He calls, Saul calls the people out to war. They see the opposing force and they run. They were distressed, as the Bible says. They hid in caves. They hid in thickets. They hid in rocks. I don't know how you hide in a rock, but maybe it's a really big rock. <clears throat> they, they hide in holes. They hide in pits. Some of the Hebrews even escaped across the Jordan. Remember, two and a half tribes had settled on the other side of the Jordan. So some of them ran over there, and we're going to find out that some of them actually went and joined the Philistines. We're going to find that out later on. And I, it just kind of boggles my mind how quickly we forget, right? Back in chapter 11, God did a wonderful thing, thundered from heaven, defeated the Philistines for them. Now they see the Philistines again and going, hey, you know what? Remember what he did last time? Maybe he'll do that again. Let's find out. No, they ran away, tails between their legs. I don't want anybody to get the idea. You know. Now, I do want to notice, and I already mentioned it, but Jonathan attacked the Philistines. So it's kind of Jonathan's fault. He started all this. Don't worry. He's going to finish it. But Saul takes credit for it. So this is kind of the beginning of Saul going very much the wrong way. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 mentions seven things that God hates. One of them is a proud look. Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
And so as a result of that, Saul is beginning to show the corruption that's, that's happening, even though he started off so well. So we're going to pick up in verse 8. So he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. So you've got to keep this in mind. Samuel is the one, apparently, that sent him to Gilgal. And Samuel told Saul, wait seven days and I'll be there. So he did. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Samuel hadn't showed up, and the people were like, well, we're not staying here if Samuel's not coming. Now it happened as soon as, oh, sorry, verse 9. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. That's a problem. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. So this was not a long period of time. Saul needed to wait an hour, two hours, three hours maybe. He just needed to wait a little longer. He had already waited a week. Samuel said, what have you done? I'm guessing that God told him before he got there. And Saul, well, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the, Philippi Philippines, the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the law. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Now, you have to understand that word compelled there. It means forced. So Saul was blaming Samuel. He said, you didn't show up. I was forced into doing this because you weren't here. That's essentially what he said. So Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. And because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So 1,400 guys had taken off. Um, why can't Samuel or Saul do this? Well, he's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's a Benjamite. And if you were not a Levite, you could not offer sacrifices. We remember Samuel was a Levite. He was allowed to offer sacrifices. But Saul was not. And we talked about this way back when we were studying you know, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that God took that very seriously. He said, this is your role. This, these are the people that get to do this. No one else. And so when Saul disobeyed the commandment, that's the commandment he's disobeying. It isn't kind of an interesting um, dichotomy. You know, just a few chapters back, Saul was afraid to step into the role that God had called him to. He was hiding instead of letting Samuel make him king. Now he's stepping into a role that he is not allowed to take and then blaming Samuel for him doing it. Very, very different. So, of course, Samuel shows up, calls him a fool, tells him that he would have had the kingdom established under him, but because of his disobedience, God would give the kingdom to a man after God's own heart. And we know, of course, that will be David. Now, 
He went from 2,000 to 600 against an innumerable force on the part of the Philistines. That's going to become really important. I do want to talk a moment about patience. I don't want to talk about patience, but God told me to. Psalm 37.7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. It would have been nice for Saul if he had had that verse, because he was fretting. He was fretting that the Philistines were going to prosper in this battle. And instead of resting in the Lord and waiting patiently for him, he stepped out. Psalm 40, verse 1 says, I, wait, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. You know, and there's a lot of verses about waiting on the Lord. And in every single one of them, guess what happens? God comes through. He was also disobedient. God rejected Saul because Saul rejected God's authority over him. We talked about this when we talked about Saul's coronation. Everybody is under the authority of someone. Or they should be. Somebody who does not recognize the authority above them becomes, well, what we see in Saul. Becomes corrupt. Becomes a dictator. Um, and what we will see happen in not that many chapters to come is that Saul will try to hold on to his kingdom by force and try to keep it from David. Now there's an interesting parallel in that because we see this taking place in our world. Jesus purchased the redemption of the world on the cross. It's his. He paid for it. Now he hasn't taken possession of it yet. He will. It's going to be awesome. But he hasn't yet. He's taken possession of part of it. That's us. But we have an enemy who has proclaimed himself the God of this world, and he is trying to keep his throne by force. And man, he's fighting hard. But we know that the day will come when Jesus will return. He will take his purchased possession. And what a glorious day that will be. I can't wait. Verse 16. Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained at Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders, uh, not Oakland, raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. Oh, they're not in Oakland anymore, are they? They're in Las Vegas, but either way. Uh, they came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, sorry, I wasn't going to say Oprah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and spears. So all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines. Wow! The Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pin for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle 
But there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were, un, or were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So kind of this little bit of commentary at the end uh, before we get into the main event, uh, which is chapter 14, so good. So the Philistines send out raiding parties while they're waiting to figure out what to do. And the Israelites had no weapons. Now Saul and Jonathan were an exception. But the Israelites had no weapons. This was because the Philistines didn't want them to have blacksmiths so they could make their own weapons. And instead, because they were an agrarian society, everything they needed to do, you know, to plow their fields, to, to harvest their, their grains and whatnot, well, that would need to be sharpened. So they would go down to the Philistines who would charge them a pim. Um, it's about two-thirds of a shekel. Uh, the temple tax was only half a shekel. So they were overcharging them to sharpen their tools. Now, you have a superior force. You have a superior force that's sending out raiding parties. You have a superior force that's well-armed. Chariots, horsemen, swords, spears, shields. You have a superior force against a very inferior force that is weaponless. And it is not going to make one bit of difference. Oh, chapter 14 is so good. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, were, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of the one was Bozaz, and the name of the other was Senna. The front of the one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving, by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to all your heart. This I love. So we get one of Eli's grandsons. Ahijah, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. Um, so we remember when Eli and both Phinehas and Hophni died, Phinehas's wife went into labor and had Ichabod, so apparently Ahijah was Ichabod's older brother. And so after Eli and then Phinehas died, then that would put Ahijah next in line. So he was there wearing the ephod. No one knew that Jonathan and his armor bearer had taken off, and so they go between these two rocks. And Apparently, I, I've never been there, but apparently these two rocks still exist. And what they do is they're at the top of this hill that this is the only way over. And it's a pretty steep face going up. 
Well, and the reason you wanted control of that is it was easily defensible. You had high ground. You had the protection of the rocks. You had the steep side of the hill coming up to you. So you were in, you were in pretty good shape if you had this. Now, before we move forward, and you all probably know what's, going, what's about to happen, but I love the exchange between Jonathan and his armor bearer. I absolutely love this. Jonathan looks at his armor bearer. Hey, you know what we should do? Let's go over to these uncircumcised. God might work for us. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. You just gotta, I, I got to picture this conversation. They're hanging out. Jonathan's got a sword. His armor bearer does not. Maybe they were under a different pomegranate tree, so they had the juice running down their cheeks. And Jonathan, yeah, you know what we should do? Let's go see if we can kill those guys. Because you know, God can do this. He doesn't need a lot of people. And this is Jonathan's faith in the Lord's ability to deliver them. And I love the logic because the logic shows a proper understanding of the greatness of God. All we need is for God to work. Not us, not numbers, not money, but God. And how do we find out if God wants to work? Well, we go check out the uncircumcised Philistines, right? You got to step out in faith. That's the point I was getting at. You, you make yourself available to what God wants to do, and you step off in, out in faith. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the armor bearer, right? His job was to give Jonathan his armor. No weapon, no shield, no actual armor for himself, just for Jonathan. Jonathan says, why don't we give it a try? And the armor bearer goes, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. What? Do all that is in your heart, he says. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. And I love this dedication. It's dedication to the vision of the man he was following. A willingness to risk his life for Jonathan's faith. Because maybe he didn't have the same faith. But he was going to follow Jonathan, that was his job. And all I, I wrote down, I wrote down four pretty little words. We must believe together. And I love that. You know, because there's going to be times for all of us at various points in life, at various circumstances and different situations where our faith is going to struggle or our faith is going to falter. Well, if it's you, then the rest of us will believe for you and with you. And if it's me then all of you believe for and with me. And we go together. I just, I love this. I love, I love that scene. So beautiful. Verse 8. So Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come down to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. Remember, big hill, steep, Sharp rocks. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. 
where the Lord has delivered them into our hand, then this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden. Oh, wrong answer. And the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. And Jonathan looked at his armor bearer and said, oh, yeah. <laughs> come up after me. For the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees. Remember, steep, sharp rocks. Jonathan climbs up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. How? Right, so they fall before Jonathan. So Jonathan comes up swinging his sword, and they're, they're, they're going down left and right, but they're not dying. And the armor bearer, like, dude must be Rambo something because he's just coming up killing the guys, but he ain't got a sword. Maybe he did pick one up off the ground. I kind of want to think that he was snapping necks. That's just me, that, that, that he was like, <laughs> counting them off like, like Gimli and Legolas in Two Towers. Didn't have the jawbone, he didn't have nothing. But I just, I love this. And so it says in verse 14, the first slaughter with Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. Oh, I just, I love it. So they show themselves. They said, all right, this is how we're going to know God's will. If they say this, yeah, we better not go up. But if they say that, then God's given them over to us. Well, they said that. And Jonathan said, sweet. And they go up the hill on hands and knees, kill 20 guys. I love it. Once they knew what God wanted them to do, they moved forward. They committed to it and moved forward. I shared this with my elders uh, last week, Wednesday. Hernan Cortez, do you guys remember Hernan Cortez? He was an explorer, ended up in South America. Huh? Hernan? Hernan. Hernando. Hernan, her, what, whatever. That's not the important thing. Hernan Cortez, he gets to the New World after an extremely long journey. His men were tired. They were weary. Some of them had died. Some of them were sick. And they looked at him and said, we, we don't want to go forward. We want to go back. And Hernando, well, he burned their ships. He said, if you want to live, you go forward. I like me some Hernan Cortez. Luke 9.62, Jesus said something similar. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. God wants us moving forward, folks. He doesn't want us to stand still. He doesn't want us to be comfortable. He wants us moving forward. And sometimes that means burning the ships. Good old Hernan. Verse 15. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field and among the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earthquake, so that it was a very great trembling. So the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. 
And Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. How? Now, I'm sorry. Now, nothing happens to the ark right now. But didn't they learn their lesson? You don't take the ark out to battle. It doesn't work. <clears throat> Anyways. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him assembled. They went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was a very great confusion. The enemy is confused. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines, remember I said some of them had defected, as it were, who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. I love this. Saul, Jonathan says, let's go. Armor-bearer says, yeah, let's do it. They kill 20 guys, and God does the rest. God sends an earthquake. He sends confusion to the point that every sword, the sword of every man was against his neighbor. So this confusion was so great that the Philistines started killing one another. Then the Israelites who defected, they were like, wait a second, we, we picked the wrong side. So they started killing the Philistines. Saul sees what's going on. Well, the watchman sees what's going on. And he's like, hey, Saul, something happening. Saul goes, well, let's figure out who's not here. Right? Now, remember, there were only 600 guys. Actually, there were only 558. We figured out it was Jonathan and his armor bearer. And so Saul says, bring the ark. But the noise just keeps getting louder and louder and louder. Because Saul wanted to inquire of the Lord, like, you know, should we go up? And, and God was like, Go! So they went up. And the slaughter was great. The Lord saved Israel that day. Why? Because A, it was his will. He wanted to save Israel that day. And B, because Jonathan stepped out in faith. Pastor Chuck is fond of saying, uh, well, he was anyway. He's, he, he, maybe he still says it. I don't know. He's in heaven now. But uh, he was fond of saying, the world has yet to see what God can do through one person who is totally committed to him. You know, you look throughout the history of the world. There have been some great men and women of the faith. There have been some amazing people who have done amazing things, who God has worked through incredibly and mightily. But there's not one of them, if they were honest, would tell you that they were without sin. There's not one of them that would tell you they'd never made mistakes. There's not one of them that would tell you they didn't have their own struggles and difficulties. And so I don't think the world has actually seen what God can do through one person. But we can step out in faith. And when we step out in faith, God shows up. He shows up in a powerful way. And we see so many examples of that. One of my favorite will always be Noah. 
when Noah built the ark, there, there had never been rain. There had never been a flood. There was no seafaring, right? There was no traders. There was no pirates. There was no, none of that. So nobody had probably ever even seen a boat. And let alone a big boat, a really big boat. And we're told in Scripture that he was mocked, that he was made fun of, teased, probably relentlessly by the people around him. And all these animals start showing up. Right? All these animals start showing up. Brings them on board. God closes the door and it starts to rain. Something so, so powerful about stepping out in faith. Verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Do you see the problem with that statement? Who was Saul looking out for? Did he say, you know what, nobody eat any food until we take vengeance on those who mocked our God? Or until we take vengeance on the enemies of Israel in the name of our God, or anything of the sort. No, until I take vengeance on my enemies. Pride, arrogance, foolishness, and that foolishness led to a stupid vow. No one was allowed to eat anything. And we're actually going to find out that the person who did was supposed to die. We're going to find that out in a little bit. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth where the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honey and put it in his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Um, I've done, I, I know I've shared with you, but I've done some uh, obstacle course races. And the lesson that I learned was to take food with me. Dead serious. I found out that no matter how many carbs you eat or how much you carb load the couple days leading up to a race like that, your muscles and your body can actually only store about 90 minutes worth of energy, give or take, depending on the person. Well, one of my races lasted almost eight hours. I would have been in so much trouble. I got to the point, I, I brought so much that I was feeding other people. Uh, people that were on the course and they just, they couldn't, they were cramping up and I had electrolyte tablets and they were, some people were just, blood sugar had dropped because they didn't bring anything, so I was giving them food. And those little gel packets that taste like, whoa, but they work. So you got these people fighting for their lives against a vastly superior force, even though they were confused and killing each other. That was a lot of work. Right? And Saul says, but you can't eat. I can only imagine how tired and worn out they were. Verse 28. Then one of the people said, 
Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father's an idiot. Oh, wait, no. My father has troubled the land. That's a nice way of saying my father's an idiot. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Right? There goes Jonathan with his logic again. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, something like that, so the people were very faint. Now listen to what happens because of this oath. Right? The battle finally does come to an end. And then in verse 32, the people rushed on the spoil. They took sheep, oxen, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. They were eating them raw. They were so hungry and so desperate that they were killing the animals and eating them raw. This was told to Saul. Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And the people said, then Saul said, sorry, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox, every man's sheep, slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So Saul sees this. He knows this is wrong. And he, he says, no, 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 no. Bring me a rock. He basically sets up an outdoor barbecue, has them bring the animals there to slaughter and cook them before they ate. But it, it just continues to show the foolishness of his um, vow. Now he builds an altar to the Lord. Was Saul supposed to build an altar? No. Saul was, he, Samuel just told him not to do that like a few days earlier. But anyways, so Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Well, at least this grandson of Eli was a, was a decent fellow. So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Right? They knew. They knew who it was. And he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son and Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. So Saul said to the Lord of Israel, give a perfect lot. So they, Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die. Remember I said Saul fell from grace pretty quickly? And the people said to Saul, uh-uh. Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. 
So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So if you remember back to Jephthah when we were in the book of Judges, he was the guy who made the bonehead vow that the first thing to meet him coming out of his house, he would kill. And the first thing that met him coming out of his house was his only child, his daughter. And we had that discussion back then. But the fact of the matter is, you, you don't have to keep a foolish vow. Right? I mean, just, just imagine. Well, Lord, you know, if you do this for me, I promise I'll cut off my left foot. Well, you're an idiot then. Don't cut off your left foot. Right? We don't have to keep foolish vows. Especially if keeping the vow would cause us to sin. Then we certainly don't have to keep the vow. Saul's foolishness would have cost Jonathan his life. But the people stood against the king. Right? So this, this is unraveling. Remember, Saul's only been king for a couple years. Now, he's going to be king for quite a while longer. But his kingdom is going to be extremely ineffective. And many of the people are going to want to follow after David. In the end, it's just better not to vow. <laughs> Jesus told us that in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, um, where he said, don't swear, neither by heaven it's God's throne, nor by the earth it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So there were two really cool spots in there. When Ahijah said, let us draw near to God here, I appreciate that at least somebody was, besides Jonathan, was, was thinking of that. And the people standing up against Saul, that's a big deal. Verse 47. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines, wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner. Saul's uncle. I love Abner. Right? His father's name was Ner. The, the name Abner literally means son of Ner. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner was the son of Adiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Now, this attack against the Amalekites that's mentioned here is going to be a huge deal in the next chapter. It sets up the whole book of Esther. But we'll get into that next week. So basically, this, this kind of little commentary at the end, Saul kept fighting all the surrounding nations, including the Philistines and the Amalekites. Saul was established as kings. We see his wife. We see his kids. Um, we see son of Ner. And we then see that last verse, Saul conscripting men into military service. He saw anybody strong, saw anybody valiant. He just said, you're mine now, which is exactly what Samuel warned would happen. 
So anyway, this week we started to get a better idea about Saul, about his character, about his personality. He had so much potential, and he started so well. But as he gained power, he became prideful, and he became foolish. Because we know people who gain power are typically afraid to lose it, and they're going to do everything they can to keep it, right? It's the tragedy of Darth Pelagius the Wise. I, I knew Aaron would at least get that one. It's a Star Wars reference. Soft G. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, sorry. Um, but we're going to see this to a much greater degree next week as Saul straight up disobeys God. My, my challenge to all of us, you know, I like to say to you, but I'm included in you because we're all together in this. Take a step of faith this week. I don't care what it is. You know, for all of us, God is calling us to something, urging us towards something. God is speaking to us about something that we're hesitating or we're afraid of or whatever it might be. Step out in faith. It's nothing for God to deliver with many or with few. Nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can rest in your strength, that we can rest in your power, that we can rest in your ability, that it's not about what we can do. It's not about how many of us there are. It's not about any of that. It's are we willing to be available to you, to surrender to you, and to step out in faith when you call us to do so. God, give us the grace to be those people. Give us the grace to step out in faith and to see your power. I pray you'd watch over us the rest of this week and all we have to do. I pray you would be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.